Have you ever thought about how crazy it seems to people who don't know Jesus Christ when they look at how much emphasis we put on this one person? Especially in a culture that is so self-absorbed that anything outside of self doesn't really seem like it's, it's worthy of, of a whole lot of energy and effort. I mean, we live in a culture where, where prenuptial agreements make it convenient to get out of marriage covenants. There are very few commitments in our culture that are all-encompassing, if any. How can it be that we find one person so worthy of our affection and our attention and our devotion that we talk even of denying self of of setting self completely aside and focusing entirely on Him. How can that be? The world doesn't understand how we could find anyone else all that impressive. And what they really, really don't understand is how we can spend week after week and day after day praying to and worshiping and praising and depending upon someone we haven't even seen with our own physical eyes. It seems like mindless fanaticism to the world's way of thinking. But we know, don't we? Even though we struggle daily with the same distractions that this world freely embraces, we know that there is one who is worthy of all of our attention, all of our affection, all of our devotion. We know this because we have come to know the One who is perfect man and perfect God. The One who is all in all. As God brings the prophet Zechariah to the end of a series of eight visions in this chapter, He places that same preeminently worthy person directly in focus. And when we stop to consider the things that God declares about Zechariah in this final vision and in this final chapter of of the visions, along with all that he's said about him in the previous visions, we have no doubt that our affection and attention and devotion is rightly placed. Now there are two parts to chapter 6. First in verses 1 through 8 is the final vision, the eighth of eight visions, and it's the vision of the four chariots. Then in verses 9 through 15, God gives specific instructions to Zechariah about something that he is to do. And I believe those instructions tie back to all of the preceding visions. And we'll, we'll look at that as we proceed. In Zechariah's eighth and final vision, he beholds four chariots, each powered by a team of horses. Each team of horses is a different color. Now throughout the Old Testament, horses and chariots represent military might. The armies with the most chariots and the most skillful charioteers are the ones with the really powerful armies. But the most mighty of all horses and chariots are those that belong to Yahweh, the Lord of armies. Read Second Kings chapter 6 sometime for a, a great story about the chariots and horsemen of the Lord. In verse 5, Zechariah's angelic tour guide in this chapter explains to Zechariah that 
these chariots that he's just looked at are the four spirits of heaven going forth after standing before the Lord of all the earth. And that phrase, the four spirits of heaven, in verse 5 of chapter 6, is the same original wording that's translated the four winds of of the heavens in chapter 2, verse 6. Four spirits, four winds. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, John the Apostle sees a vision of four angels standing at the four corners of the earth. North, south, east, and west. Those are the four corners. And they are holding back the four winds of the earth. And those four winds, we find out as we read the passage in Revelation 7, represent cataclysmic judgments that God is about to send forth to harm the earth and the sea. And God is telling through another angel, He's telling these four warrior angels to hold tight, to wait, and not to dispense those judgments until the bondservants of God are all sealed on their forehead. Now, obviously, I could spend a lot of time developing that passage, but I'm not going to. I point that out because I think that passage informs this one. I believe the four charioteers that Zechariah is beholding are angelic warriors that God has tasked with executing judgments against the nations. As the vision unfolds in Zechariah 6, two of the, two of the chariots team up. They group together and they go up to the north country. The chariot with the dappled horses heads to the south and the chariot with the red horses isn't mentioned again. Uh, perhaps he was benched for this particular task or held in reserve. Zechariah 6 verse 7 refers to these chariot teams as the strong ones. And you'll find several instances in the Bible and Daniel and Revelation and other places that refer to strong angels. Angels apparently who have, uh, who have much power to execute God's will. And it says in verse 7 that these strong ones are eager to go and patrol the earth. So they're, they're chomping at the bit to engage in a reconnaissance mission. But what is it that they're eager to scope out? Well, in verse 8, it appears that they're eager to examine the outcome of a judgment that's already occurred. Particularly God's judgment against the land of the north. God speaks directly to Zechariah in verse 8, and He says, See, those who are going to the land of the north have appeased my wrath. Literally, they have quieted my spirit, God says. In the land of the north. So the land of the north is mentioned twice in in one verse. It's definitely in focus here. Now, the vast area of land to the north and east of Canaan was the land from which the captors of both Israel and Judah had come. The nations of Assyria and Babylon had both occupied that same territory. I believe the idea here is that the Spirit of God is at rest because the work of judgment that He had vowed to execute against that that land was now complete. And this passage is actually looking at things that have not happened yet. These visions are all pointing to things that that are going to happen later. 
By speaking of this future judgment as if it had already occurred, God is asserting the certainty that it will occur. That happens a whole lot in the prophets. It's called prophetic perfect. Now, I believe God is giving Zechariah here yet another glimpse of a future time when His angelic servants will carry out His judgment against the nations that overstepped their assignment when He used them to judge His own people. You remember back in chapter 1, I think it's verse 15, it talks about God being jealous for His people for Judah and Jerusalem and uh, Jerusalem and Zion and it's and he says that he's going to execute a judgment against those who furthered the disaster they went further than they were supposed to go now what is it about this vision that would have been important to Zechariah's immediate audience well as we saw in chapter 2 in the in the third vision God commanded his people to flee from that same land that north country, to escape from there and to come back to Jerusalem and Judah, to the place where He was going to come to dwell in their midst. It was now more than 18 years after the decree of King Cyrus, king of Persia, that had authorized the Judahites to return from, from Persia, who used to be Babylon, and to come to Jerusalem and to begin rebuilding again. Eighteen years. Some of them had come, but many, probably most, had not. They had become comfortable and complacent in the land of their captivity. They preferred the safety and the relative predictability of staying in Persia over the uncertainty and risk and personal sacrifice that would be involved to go back to Jerusalem. But God warned them back in the third vision that staying in that place (laughs) wouldn't be safe at all because He was going to come and judge that land of the north. And He called His people to get out of there so they wouldn't be there when that judgment occurred. So God had taken Judah away into Babylon for a time, for 70 years, a long time. But when He put them there in that land, they weren't supposed to become citizens of that land. They weren't supposed to see that as home. They weren't supposed to embrace Babylon's gods or Babylon's ways. In fact, they were supposed to be set apart as God's covenant people. Read Ezekiel 36 sometime. They went into those nations and God put them there to bear witness to Him. And instead, Ezekiel said, through Ezekiel, God says they profaned His name in those places. Babylon was not the place that God had promised to their forefathers. It was not the place to which He promised to return. It was not their place because it was not His place. Some of them had already returned to Jerusalem. And now God's urgently calling all the rest to come. And in the two visions that we looked at last week, God was calling all of His people to be separate from the wretched and godless culture that's represented by the names Shinar, Babylon, and wickedness. He calls His people to be set apart to Him. Now before we move on, 
I want to look at that vision. I want to see it in the context of all the eight visions. So we're going to do kind of a quick re- recap, a big picture look at the visions. The first vision in chapter 1 was the first angelic patrol. Horses, no chariots. <laughs> the horsemen of God went out and they surveyed the, the, the earth and they came back and they said, everything is sitting and undisturbed, but only for a time. God then declared His jealousy for Jerusalem and Zion and He said that He would bring judgment upon the nations that had furthered the disaster against His people. And He also said in that same vision that He would restore Jerusalem, His dwelling place. The second vision in chapter 1, I call it the carpenter's smackdown. God, it speaks about those who have their horns raised up. And that's the picture of a, of a bull or an animal that raises up its horns to do battle. And it's a picture of pride and arrogance and, and uh, the kind of power that comes from self. And in that vision, it says God's going to take the carpenters and He's going to send them against those nations with their horns raised up and He's going to cast their horns down. And so He's following up on that promise to to judge the nations that had overstepped. The third vision, the man with the measuring line. God is measuring out Judah and He's telling His people to flee, to escape from the land of the north before He comes and judges it. And to come to Jerusalem and then He says, I'm coming there to dwell in your midst. The fourth vision, Joshua as a symbol. This is a powerful vision. All of them are. But in this vision, there are two parts. In the first part, Joshua, the high priest, symbolizes God's desperately unclean people made clean purely by God's choosing and by God's doing. And in the second part of that Vision, Joshua the high priest symbolizes God's servant, the branch, who will remove the iniquity of his land in a single day. The fifth vision, the golden lampstand and the two olive trees. The emphasis in that vision is God declaring to Zerubbabel, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. And I believe there are two declarations in that vision. First to Zerubbabel, you will rebuild the temple by the power of my spirit. And then to Judah, you will be my lampstand, my light bearers, by the power of the Spirit. By the power of the Spirit. Both by the power of the Spirit. The sixth vision, the flying scroll. And every time that I say that in my speech to text app, it writes down the flying squirrel. So I must say it funny. The flying scroll is a curse that consumes. God's house will not share the land with the houses of sinners. And so God sends forth a curse that will eradicate the households of those who steal and those who swear falsely in His name. And we talked about how those sins represent many sins. Vision 7. Not only will God eradicate sin from His land, He will eradicate sin from the nations as well. The picture of the woman locked up in the container, sealed 
with the lead cover and banished, taken out, taken out of the way. God will utterly dispense with the kingdom of wickedness. And now vision 8, the four chariots. Another surveillance or reconnaissance mission, I call it the post-smackdown report, God's wrath against the land of the north will be satisfied. It will be appeased. That's a certainty. All of these visions are tied to the central exhortation of the book from chapter 1, verse 3. What was that exhortation? Return to me that I may return to you. All of these visions are about God's call to His people to set the stage for that return. The visions declare the judgments by which God will cleanse His land of sin and of those enslaved to sin and in and will remove sin from this earth so that He may dwell in the midst of His people. They declare the redemption by which He will cleanse His own people so that they will be made worthy to dwell together with Him in His place. They reveal the power that will enable God's people to act as His agents, as His stage setters, to pave the way for His return to their midst. And that power is the power of His Spirit. That's what the oil pictures is the Holy Spirit. They speak of the One who is coming to lay claim to His land. The One called the Branch who will accomplish all of these judgments and all of these deliverances that are spoken of in this book. The visions all talk about the same thing. Return to Me that I may return to you. Now how... Do the declarations in these visions relate to us here and now? Well, the central theme of all of them is a promise and an assignment. The promise is God that God is coming to dwell in our midst. And the assignment that's tied to that promise is God's call to us, His people, to fully return to Him. We've been tasked with setting the stage for His imminent return. And at the heart of that sacred calling is the call to us to be entirely devoted to Him. That call to genuine holiness comes with the certainty that nothing of this world will survive His judgment. There's nothing here to hang on to because He's going to do away with everything that this world system represents. And He's going to replace it. He's going to make it new. He's going to redeem it. And He's going to redeem us. And He's going to dwell together with us in perfect righteousness and holiness. So we have every reason to let go of the things of this world. And we have every reason to fix our attention entirely on the author and finisher of our faith. There is no other reasonable course of action for us who believe these things, is there? We, we compromise because we still struggle with the flesh, but that compromise doesn't make any sense. I've heard it said before that sin is insanity. That's really what it is. It makes no sense. The world looks at what we do, at what we represent, at what we proclaim, and they say, those people are crazy. 
And we look at what God declares and we say, anyone who doesn't follow Christ is crazy. Their life makes no sense. In fact, it's not life according to God. Now, I'm not the standard for any of this. Jesus is. But I have to tell you, God has most certainly been shaking me up through the things that I've been seeing in this powerful book and through other recent studies, especially Titus, I think, recently. God has been shaking up how I pray for people, for lost people and for redeemed people. He's been shaking up what I set before my eyes and what I allow to go into my ears. He's been shaking up the intensity of attention that I pay to the craziness of this world. I used to be the world's number one news addict. You know what? There's a whole lot that doesn't matter to me anymore. I'm not the, I'm not the standard. But I want to tell you that above all else, God has been shaking up my awareness of the absolute claim that His grace toward me has on me and on all of us. And I pray that that He's doing that same kind of shaking in your life. There is a second half of this chapter and it's exceedingly powerful. And that is verses 9-15, through God's instructions to Zechariah in light of these eight visions. The theme of this section is the priest on his throne. And this is amazing stuff. In verse 9, Zechariah begins by saying, The word of the Lord came to me, saying... Now, that's a very different opening formula than everything we've seen in the visions. Those started with statements like, Then I lifted up my eyes and behold, or then an angel showed me. This is not another vision that Zechariah received through God's angelic representatives. In this passage, God is giving Zechariah very specific instructions about something that he is to do. Something very unusual. Something very unexpected that builds on everything God has been showing him. All that we just looked at. Now, some very reputable commentators think there's two men spoken of in in this passage uh, that that are kind of pointed to, Zerubbabel and Joshua. I uh, You can look at my footnotes in the manuscript if you want to see that argument. But I believe very strongly that this passage, chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, is presenting one man, Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah's day, as a symbol who foreshadows one man who will come later, and that man is Jesus Christ. I understand that there's a tension in this passage between, with, with an earlier passage, in chapter 4, in which God told Zerubbabel that he would put the capstone on the temple. He would rebuild the temple. And now God is saying to Joshua that he's going to rebuild the temple. I believe that tension is entirely deliberate on God's part. This passage is supposed to raise the eyebrows of Zechariah's audience. It's supposed to make them wonder how it could possibly be that the amazing things that are said here about the one God calls the branch the kingly figure who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne could possibly be a priest. 
Joshua is the symbol. We already found that out in chapter 3. God is taking that symbol and ratcheting it up to a whole nother level in this passage. Now let's look at how that plays out. In verse 10, God instructs Zechariah to receive an offering from a group of exiles and he lists them by name. These are men who are apparently coming back from Persia and they are bearing with them some of the treasures that King Darius is devoting to the rebuilding of the temple. Because in Ezra, in the book of Ezra, Darius said not only that he was going to protect the Judahites who returned to the land, but he was going to support them, even financially. He was going to provide for the rebuilding of the temple. So I believe these guys are coming back from Persia and they're, they're bearing gold and silver and, and fabric and gems for the rebuilding of the temple. In verse 11, God tells Zechariah what he's supposed to do with some of that treasure. He says, take silver and gold and make an ornate crown and set it on the head of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Whoa! A crown on a high priest? Then say to him, thus says Yahweh of hosts, behold, a man whose name is Branch. We've heard that before in chapter 3. For he will branch out from where he is and he will build the temple of the Lord. Yes, it is he who will build the temple of the Lord. And he who will bear the honor and sit and rule on his throne. <laughs> and then it says, thus he will be a priest on his throne. And the council of peace will be between the two. Between King and priest. Now would Judah have expected to hear words such as these? Had they ever heard of such a thing as a high priest of Yahweh being crowned with a royal crown and ruling over the people from a throne? Well, way back in Deuteronomy 17 when God first told Israel how things would go when they demanded to have a king, he gave him a list of uh, instructions, and most of it is negative. He's telling him what that king should not do. He should not amass material wealth or military might. He shouldn't form alliances by marriage with the leaders of other nations. He should never let the people of God seek refuge from other nations because God is their refuge. So it's all what, they should, what he should not do. All the stuff that kings normally do, the king over God's people should not do. And then... There's one positive command. Just one. The king over God's people must write for himself on a scroll the law of God. But in the presence of the Levitical priests, that means that he is submitted to them because they are the mediators of the law and of the knowledge of God and of the way of access to God at the temple. So if that's the way it's supposed to play out, the king is subordinate to the priests. So how could he be a priest himself? First Samuel 13, the first king over Israel, at one point, that's Saul, at one point he took it upon himself to offer sacrifices because he was tired of waiting for Samuel to show up. And when Samuel came to the scene and found out what had happened, Samuel rebuked him severely and Samuel told him that he was going to be replaced, that his kingdom was coming to an end. That should make it pretty clear that 
Israel's kings didn't get to assume the role of priests, and Israel's priests didn't get to assume the role of king. But that wasn't God's final word on the offices of priest and king. In fact, it wasn't even His first word. It's not as if Israel had never gotten any hints from God before Zechariah's day about God's intention to unite the office of priest and king in one man. In Psalm 110, a very well-known psalm of David, King David is writing what Yahweh spoke. And Yahweh speaks directly in this psalm to one, to the man whom he, God, has called to sit at his right hand. The man who will rule with his strong scepter, whose enemies will, God will make a footstool for his feet. And all of that, of course, speaks of divine kingship, right? But in the same psalm, and it's not a long psalm, God goes on to say to that same man, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So the man David wrote about in this passage is called both priest and king. That little seven verse, verse psalm was written by King David about 500 years before Zechariah's day and a thousand years before Jesus Christ came in the flesh. And that psalm is the most often quoted psalm in the New Testament. As the psalm that directly, as a psalm that directly points to Jesus Christ. And the powerful declaration of the psalm is that the King of Kings will be a priest forever. A priest from a distinct priestly line. Not the line of Aaron, of the sons of Levi, but of the line of Melchizedek. Okay, so who's Melchizedek? Well, bear with me for a minute because this is worth looking at. In Genesis 14, and by the way, just again for context, I'm trying to establish that when God gave this word to Zechariah, this really wasn't entirely new information. Israel had a, Judah had precedent for this and for where it was pointing. After Abram's return uh, from defeating four, the armies of four kings who had invaded Sodom and Gomorrah and carried Lot off uh, in cap, as a captive, after Abram defeated those kings, he gave a tenth of the spoils of that battle to a man named Melchizedek, who is identified both as king of Salem and as a priest of the Most High, king and priest. The writer of Hebrews makes a very big deal about this man Melchizedek. He refers to him eight times over the span of three chapters of the book of Hebrews. In Hebrews chapter 7, the writer points out the very great significance of this man's name. The name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. And the title, king of Salem, Shalem from Shalom, means king of peace. And so when you put his name with this title, this man that Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils to is king of righteousness, king of peace. There's something very interesting going on there. Now that's a very surprising designation for a priest, wouldn't you say? Israel already had knowledge of God's 
intent to unite these offices. Now, I'm not saying that was the norm. Certainly, Melchizedek is a very unusual figure who seems to shatter boundaries that are hard and fast in other parts of the Old Testament. My point is that Judah and Israel did have a precedent for God's intent to unite these two offices. And now, through Zechariah, God is telling them again about one who will be His priest king. And one other little fascinating tidbit. In Psalm 76, verse 2, Salem, Shalem, is equated with Jerusalem. Could it be that in this incomparable person called Melchizedek, God was giving His people a glimpse of the preeminent priest-king who will rule from His throne in Jerusalem. I think that's exactly what's going on. And I believe that God is ceremonially presenting Joshua as a picture, a foreshadowing of that priest-king. The one that we're all waiting for. In Zechariah's third vision, God declared Joshua the high priest and his friends to be a symbol. He said, Behold, I'm going to bring in my servant, the branch, and I'm going to remove sin from my land in a single day. What God had ceremonially done for Joshua earlier in that same chapter, chapter 3, to remove his sin, to make him clean and useful, (laughs) God was promising to do for the whole land which he would return to dwell in the midst of his people. And when you put all these pieces together, the sin bearer is the sin remover. The perfect and preeminent high priest that God calls my servant, the branch. And that same person in Zechariah chapter 6 is again symbolized by the same man, Joshua, Only this time, he's not just presented as a priest, he's presented as a king. Once Zechariah had carried out the ceremony that God commanded in these verses by making a crown and setting it on the head of Joshua, the high priest, and declaring these words that God had told him to declare, God then told him that that crown was to be placed in the temple as a reminder, literally a memorial. A memorial of what? What was the significance of that reminder in the temple for for these people that received this originally? Well, every priest who entered the temple after that day to perform the daily and weekly services of worship would see that crown and be reminded that there is one who is coming that he hasn't seen yet and that the people of Judah had not seen yet. One who will be both high priest and preeminent king. The righteous branch of David that Jeremiah talked about is coming. He is God's Messiah and He is the hope of Israel and He is our hope. How is all this significant for us? Well, the temple in Jerusalem got finished just a few years after these things were written. But again, the Judahites in Zechariah's day did not get to see the priest-king sitting on his throne. And they haven't seen that to this day. But they will. He already came once 
as the suffering servant, and he perfectly fulfilled the role of both priest and sin-bearer that Joshua pictured in Zechariah chapter 3 at the beginning of that fourth vision. But our faithful high priest, our sacrifice, our advocate against the accusations of Satan is coming again as king and as judge over the whole world. His priesthood, which is according to the order of Melchizedek, predates and transcends the Levitical priesthood. And His kingship predates the kingship of David. He is the one who plucked us as brands from the fire to make us His own people. Even when we were still covered in our filth. Zechariah chapter 3. Compare that to Ephesians chapter 2. We were lost and dead. It is He who advocates for us continually before the throne of God. The judge advocating for the accused. And He shuts down every word that is uttered against us by the accuser of the brethren, Satan. It is He who stood in our place as our perfect high priest, took our filth and our iniquity upon Himself at the cross, to make us clean and who clothed us with His perfect righteousness so that we stand white as snow before the presence of Almighty God. That's Zechariah 3 as well. It is He who will remove the sin of the land in which He has chosen to dwell and He'll do it in a single day. That's in Zechariah 3, Zechariah 5, and in Revelation 17 and 18. It is He who will rebuild the dwelling place of God in the midst of His people. Zechariah 6 that we just looked at. And who will ultimately be the temple of God in the midst of His people. Revelation chapter 21. It is He who will return as judge and who will cast aside all who have opposed Him and all who have opposed His people. He will reign as King over all the nations. That promise of judgment is in Zechariah 1, chapter chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, and chapter 6. And it is He who makes us useful vessels even now. In the last verse of this chapter, chapter 6, God says to Zechariah that all of these things will take place if you completely obey your God. At that point, it would be easy to look at that and say, okay, then none of these things will take place. right? Because I'm not very good at completely obeying my God. And I'll bet these guys weren't either. In fact, they had already proven that they weren't. But that calling is straightforward and it's uncompromising. It doesn't say, if you obey God some. It doesn't say, if you obey God some of the time. The prerequisite for Messiah's return to dwell in our midst is that His people must be holy as He is holy. Fortunately, He is the one who keeps that assignment just like He keeps all the others. 
Galatians 2.20, Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up for me. It is because we are in Him and He is in us that we are able to stand before God even now. He is the perfect law keeper who works out His righteousness in us day by day. He's the one who makes us useful for His eternal purposes. He's the one who puts us to use as good stagehands, making things ready for His glorious return to dwell in our midst. Philippians 2, Paul says He is at work in, in us both to will and to work for His good pleasure. He will complete what He has begun until the day that He presents us to Himself as His beloved bride in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. Ephesians chapter 5. Who is it who will do all of these things? It is Messiah. Jesus and when He does, then will come to pass the repeated declaration of the Messenger of Yahweh, the pre-incarnate Christ who has been speaking over and over through these visions, who said, then you will know that Yahweh of hosts has sent Me. I want to close with Titus chapter 2, verses 11-14. through 14. I'm just going to read this. I think it marvelously sums up the spirit of these first six chapters of Zechariah. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us that He might redeem us from every lawless deed and make for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. Dear Father, the One for whom we are waiting is the branch. Jesus, the author and finisher of faith. He is our judge. He is our advocate. He is our sacrifice. He is our priest. He is our King. He is our all in all. Father, make us good stagehands. Eager, ready, willing to devote our lives to preparing the way for His return. We look forward to that day, Lord, when You will dwell in the midst of Your redeemed people in Your redeemed place. And we say, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We pray this in His name. Amen.